Great. Okay. So uh, this is the third lesson in our journey, our series on emotionally healthy spirituality. And last week, we spoke about the importance of knowing ourselves so that we may know God better. And in the last two weeks, in the small group discussions, there's been this contrast um, between Saul and, and David. And we've seen how Saul uh, wasn't very self-aware, was he? He wasn't very connected with himself. And it resulted in him, you know, showing dysfunctional behavior like people pleasing. And he was certainly dis, um, uh, he was deceived about his ability and how well he obeyed God. And, and a few other things. Uh, David, on the other hand, was far from perfect, uh, but he was much more self-aware and, and, and connected with himself and with God. And today we're going to speak about the need to go backwards in order to go forward. Now, this is closely linked to what we discussed last week, because an important requirement to know ourselves is to, is to go back in time to understand how our families um, and cultures have shaped us into who we are today. You know, none of us chose the families that we were born into, where we were born or when we were born. You know, God did that. Um, you know, God put us in the families that we were raised in uh, for good reason, although I know it is sometimes hard to, to understand and, and accept that. And most of us, I believe, can say that we benefited from our families in, in some ways. But I think all of us will also say that, you know, there were things we experienced and learned during our upbringing uh, that weren't so great and would still live with us today. You know, we all have emotional baggage. We have collected in our journey, you know, through life, starting from a very young age um, in, in the families that, that formed us. You know, some carry a small knapsack. Others carry a really, really heavy load. Now, this principle of going back in order to go forward is based on two biblical truths. Firstly, um, our families, going back two or three generations, profoundly impact who we are today. You know, we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, family, uh, biblically, but also as we're going to speak about it today, and it's our family that goes back three or four generations, not just our parents, but our grandparents and our, and our great-grandparents. And we know that the decisions that, you know, our family has made over the generations before us um, impacts us, it shapes us, uh, it provides our, our worldview for us, and also um, determines for us what we consider is, is normal behavior. You know, if we read about David, getting back to David, and he is a really good example of this King David. Well, let's look at 2 Samuel verse 12. Most of us remember David, and he did a lot of good things, but sadly we remember David for a really big mistake he made, really messed up badly. He took advantage of Bathsheba, whose husband was out fighting for King David. You know, David uh, took Bathsheba for himself. She fell pregnant. Uh, he then tried to cover up the sin. He had Uriah murdered, and then he married Bathsheba. And this is what God told him. Uh, in between, God sent the prophet Nathan. And, you know, David's heart, contrasted to that of Saul, really shows in, in, in the interaction with Nathan because, you know, David responded to the challenge and he was willing to repent. But there were consequences. And this is what, you know, the message he got from, from God. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. And if we read on, you know, this, this came true. This is what happened. Uh, in David's family, there, were, there was much dysfunction. There were ongoing tensions. There was sibling rivalry. 
there was strife for generations to come. You know, one of David's own sons wanted to kill him, and David fled from him. Um, and this dysfunction continued uh, to David's children as well as his grandchildren as well as his great-grandchildren. You know, there's a saying, you know, Jesus may live in your heart, but your grandpa lives in your bones. And I think that's, that's very true. You know, regardless of our culture, our country of origin, our education levels, um, our social class, our age, um, the early messages and scripts that we took in from our histories powerfully influence our present behaviors and relationships, and also strongly influences our self-esteem. The second principle that, uh, you know, this, this truth that we need to go back in order uh, to go forward is that we must put off the sinful patterns of our families that we inherited, our families of or origin, and relearn how to do life God's way in God's family. Now, there's this amazing account in, in Mark. Uh, Jesus is sitting with a group of, of, of followers. And he's talking to them. And then someone says, you know, they hear, they hear a knock on the door. And someone goes to the door, opens it, and tells Jesus that his mother and brothers want to see him. And this was the response of Jesus. You know, Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. You know, Jesus throughout his ministry redefined family and who was in the family of God. Jesus here was saying that the church community is, you know, God's family and the church community, God's family, needs to become the first family for those who follow him. Our sense of identity, our sense of belonging, fundamentally changes when we're baptized into Christ and enter into God's family. When we become part of God's family, we certainly continue to honor our parents and to love our siblings. But a great an advantage of of being accepted into God's family as his children is that we can be rescued from the, any dysfunctional behavior in our families of origin, you know, that, you know, that have shaped us. So, you know, in Christ, we are welcomed into God's family, which becomes our first family, you know, which should be our priority in terms of relationships, uh, because it's in God's family and through these relationships that, that we get, uh, you know, healing, that we can grow, and where we get to love out, you know, the, the commandments uh, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another as Jesus loved. That's just such an, that's an important part of our witness. But it also provides a community that helps us, you know, to change and no longer be slaves to the dysfunctional behavior that we, we have inherited um, from our families of origin. Sorry, I don't actually have the slide up here, but in Ephesians 4, verse uh, 22, maybe you guys can just make a note of this. It reads, you were taught with regard to your former self to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So in Christ, we, we are to put off the sinful patterns and habits, including those that we have inherited from our biological families. And we can be made new. In Christ, we are being made new. You know, we are transformed to live as members of God's family. These two truths, you know, that our families of origin going back, you know, two or three generations profoundly impact who we are. And secondly, this truth that we need to put off our sinful patterns of our families of, of origin and relearn how to, how to do life in God's way, in God's family, underpin uh, this need to go back in order to go forward. So remember these principles as we, as we go forward with this important part of becoming emotionally healthy um, spiritually, 
these two principles are really important. Okay. You know, you may, however, ask the question, and I certainly have struggled with this. You know, you know, did Paul believe that we need to go back in order to go forward? You know, because he said this in Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know, so you might say, wait a bit here. You know, isn't Paul saying that we should just forget about the past? You know, be positive and focus on the future. Well, no, not, not at all, as I hope to, to explain. Firstly, what, you know, this word forgetting doesn't mean that we shouldn't remember it. It doesn't even mean we shouldn't recall and remember the past. What it means is that we shouldn't dwell on the past. We shouldn't let the past continue to shape us. And, you know, Paul, Paul had a past. You know, Paul inherited a lot of issues and dysfunction and bad doctrine from the way that he was, he was raised. You know, he said this in Galatians 1, explaining to the church. And just before this, you know, Paul has, has reminded them of his previous way of life in Judaism. He, re he reminds the church how intensely he persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. Uh, he reminds them that, you know, that he was advancing in Judaism uh, way beyond his age. You know, Paul was, Paul was top of the class. Uh, he was raised in, in, a, in a Jewish family in Tarsus. He started studying as a young man under the top rabbi at the time, one of the top rabbis, Gamaliel. You know, Paul knew the scriptures. Paul was convinced that he was applying the scriptures properly. Yet he, he wasn't. And Jesus himself reminded him of that. And on the road to Damascus, um, you know, Jesus appeared to him and Paul was, was converted. So this is what Paul then goes on to say in verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Um, and this, you know, if you look at the timelines, you know, when Paul, where he was at different times and when he wrote his different letters, look at the book of Acts. There is about a three-year period where Paul went missing. And this was his time in Arabia. Now, reference to Arabia uh, is often a reference to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was in Arabia. And Bible scholars believe that, you know, Paul actually, shortly after his conversion and this dramatic experience with Jesus, you know, who, who told him that you're not actually punishing the church, you're punishing me. I um, mean, you know, after that dramatic experience and his conversion, Paul needed some time out. He went to the desert. He went to Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is the beginning. Mount Sinai was the beginning of, uh, you know, God's people. You know, that's where God gave them the law and set them apart. So Paul went back to the beginning. And for three years, it seems that Paul was taught by Jesus himself. You know, similar to how the apostles really spent time with Jesus. And during that time, Paul would have reflected a lot, not only on God's story and the scriptures, but how he, Paul, had interpreted the scriptures, how he, how he had taught the scriptures, how he had incorrectly not seen Jesus as the Messiah. So I think this was a time of, of deep reflection for Paul. And at the end of the three years, you know, Jesus sent him back, God sent him back. Uh, to preach and to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So even the great Paul, I believe, needed to go back. But because of his special mission, he went right back to Mount Sinai when God first called his people. But it certainly would have been a time where, where Paul went back in order to go forward, um, you know, to be, you know, this amazing missionary and, and disciple of Jesus. 
So, you know, there are really no exceptions apart from Jesus himself, who didn't have dysfunction, etc. But all of the, you know, the heroes in the Bible, all of us, our upbringing, our families of origin, what we are taught, who we are raised, uh, rather, you know, how we are raised, what we learn, uh, does introduce uh, dysfunction. But we have this, you know, this amazing privilege and opportunity in Christ to be able to go back and to process it in a way that really prepares us and helps us uh, to be transformed and to, and to be effective, you know, disciples of Jesus really on mission for him. Uh, the last thing I'm going to share before Nolene takes over, and I did, um, I shared on the group 10 unbiblical family commandments. Now, these are messages that are commonly heard in families of origin from a young age and which really shape our, our attitude towards life, um, and the decisions we make, and how we understand what is normal. I shared 10. I just want to put on the slide the first three just to give you an idea of, um, you know, what's, what the content is and also just to share with you um, how this has helped, helped me understand some of the messaging that I received in my home. Um, the first unbiblical commandment, commandment number one, is around money. The messaging we often get is that money is the best sort, source of security. Uh, the more money you have, the more important you are. Make lots of money to prove you made it. You know, my father was raised uh, in quite a large family. He had five siblings, and it was a very poor family. Uh, my father was the second youngest, so he got all the hand, hand downs in terms of the clothes. Um, he would share stories about how, you know, he would go to school barefooted, sell newspapers on the corner. He didn't have an education. My father, I think, got to grade seven. That's all. He worked hard with his hands. He became an electrician, an apprentice. Uh, he set up a little electrical business, and he became quite successful. Now, I have a lot to be grateful for. My father was um, a kind man. He, in his own home, had been beaten, he and his siblings, by his father. His father was quite a violent man and a frustrated man. But my father was gentle. Um, however, I do remember, and certainly the message I got uh, was that money was really important. My father would, uh, he certainly provided well for us, but he also bought, he bought lots of new cars. <laughs> and for my dad, considering his poor upbringing, just, uh, you know, driving in a fancy car and, uh, you know, hanging out with important people, what was important for him? I understand where it comes from. Uh, but for a while, you know, that definitely influenced me. Um, I was very ambitious. I remember... I don't know if Nolene remembers this, but when, um, when we were dating, I, I told her that I was going to retire as a millionaire before I was 40. Remember that? Something like that. <laughs> I was going to be a multi-millionaire before I was 40 years old. Didn't happen. Thank goodness. Um, but yeah, and, and I do remember in my 50s, Nolene would say, oh, sure, Neil, I seem to remember you should be retired by now. You should be living in luxury somewhere. But I'm just saying that that messaging, you know, influenced me. It influenced my thinking. As I say, I'm grateful for my parents, uh, but I understand where this came from, from my dad. But if I didn't become a disciple, I think I could have also, you know, lived, lived like this. Conflict. The messaging we often get in our families, you know, these sort of things, avoid conflict at all costs. Don't get people mad at you. In other words, you know, don't upset people. And then in some families, loud, angry, constant biting and emotions are normal. Uh, my family, in my family, there was a lot of conflict avoidance, I think especially from my mom. Um, although we'd also go to extremes, um, where there was loud shouting. And for a while, it did seem to be normal, especially with, with my sister. Raymond, um, once again, I love my sister. We've got a great relationship now. But as a teenager, I think our home went you know, from two extremes. At, at times, there wouldn't be any conflict. People would be tiptoeing around each other not to upset anyone. But, but then it would just, oh, there would just be these outbursts. And really, not, not a good understanding and ability to, you know, to manage uh, conflict and uh, potential conflict uh, properly. Then the next one, sex. Uh, you know, some of the messaging is that sex shouldn't be spoken about openly. 
you know, that men can be promiscuous, but women must be chaste, right? And that, you know, sexuality in marriage will come easily. Not going to dig into chaste. They must remain pure. Okay. <laughs> men can sleep around, women shouldn't. Uh, and that, that is a message, you know, that uh, many people do hear and even experience uh, in, in their upbringing. I'm not going to go into detail, except let me just say that in my uh, family, sex wasn't spoken about at all. And it did encourage me as a young man to actually seek solutions in all the wrong places. But I won't go in, into that. But, you know, thankfully, once again, I understand where that comes from. Um, I understand that this is part of the messaging that, you know, that I got. Um, but, you know, thankfully, in, in Christ, um, I have been helped to realize these things with lots of help from people, including my lovely wife. And these are just three out of the ten. So we do encourage you, and you'll see it's part of the exercise that we will, our small group exercise is to go through through this and to identify the messaging, you know, that you've received in your family of origin. And really, in most cases, these messages um, are, are false. And they don't line up with, you know, life in God's kingdom, and they're certainly not conducive to living, uh, you know, joyful, effective, effective lives. This is part of really, this is a practical way to, to go back in order to go forth. Amen. So I'm going to hand over to you, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just that's really great. And it, it is so important for us to, to really spend time looking at these different um, family commandments and thinking about them deeply and realizing there might be other things here which are not on this list mm -hmm. so go and work at your handout i think this will really help you to start getting down beneath the iceberg mm -hmm. um, of your life um, and obviously part of the exercise you'll see is that we we need to look at you know, what does the word teach about these things so that we can make sure that instead of having been shaped by the world and these unbiblical um, ways of looking at things, we can allow God's word to shape us and we can, we can really start changing. Um, you know, I think um, one of the things that is important to remember is that, you know, your parents, you'll realize this as you go mm. along, um, that your parents very often, they were doing the absolute best that they could. Mm. So, you know, sometimes people are afraid of, of digging in and getting beneath the iceberg because they will feel that somehow they betraying their family if they actually start acknowledging and seeing um, the brokenness that there was in their family. Um, but I think it can be very powerful because it actually can help you, as Neil was sharing, where in understanding where it comes from, mm. you're able to have a lot more compassion yeah. um, for your parents and for your grandparents um, when you have an understanding of where they came from, you know, and it gives us an opportunity to, to step out of that. Um, I think there is a scripture. Yep. Yeah, and this is really, I guess, the attitude that God wants us to have, because this is our journey. You know, you can't change, you can't change the past. You can't change what happened in your family of origin. But for us, as we see those patterns, um, which very often have led us to be sinful in uh, the way we treat other people or you know, just in different situations. This Psalm 51 verse 17, and I will encourage you to go and really pray through the whole psalm. And mm. um, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. You know, God desires us to see those areas in us. Um, firstly, to acknowledge those areas that we know in us that are broken and, and often sinful. And then that repentance, that change that comes about through, you know, the scriptures working in our hearts, God changes us, he transforms us. And I think remember really these relationships, unfortunately, we can't meet in our groups today. Um, you know, we're hoping to try and do something during the week. But I think remember that these groups are meant to be a safe place for you. 
to be honest and to be vulnerable. You know, we through the the way we're doing it, it's a little bit differently. You know, we're not getting into hard discipling of each other in those groups. It's a place to really, really be able to go back yourself and see those areas. And we we're in a journey together. Doesn't mean we never challenge each other, but in this specific place and this platform that we've created, that's not the place to do it. Um, one of the most powerful tools to be able to help to identify um, these trends in, in families is what is called a genogram. Um, some of you have probably never heard of the termino terminology. Others I know have heard of it. Some of you I know have done genograms yourself. I've done a genogram myself. I needed to do it for one of my Rocky Mountain courses that I did. And it was really eye-opening for me. Um, it gives, it gives um, an accurate picture, really, of your family and mm -hmm. um, your ancestors. Um, Neil spoke about how you're going back a couple of generations. And um, it's kind of like a family tree, but it's looking at not just the descendants. You know, a normal family tree just looks at who was great, 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 great grandfather mm -hmm. and grandma, and so it goes down. But it's looking at um, information about your family members. It's looking at what were their relations like. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if you had grandparents, what were was your relation? What was the relationship like between granny and grandpa? Um, were they divorced? Were they, you know, and parents and, and that kind of thing. Um, it starts looking at sort of these trends that there are there. Um, perhaps, you know, things like um, alcohol, um, addictions, and, and different things that you, that you look at. It looks, you know, very much as well at the emotional relationships between people. Um, are they very connected and loving or is it distance? You know, where has there been conflict? Is there maybe some areas where it's really too enmeshed? Um, you, you know, people don't have freedom to be their own person. There's this unhealthy way of interacting where you feel like you've got to please people all the time. Um, so, you know, that, that can be really, really a powerful way to start identifying specifically as well when looking at these, um, these 10 commandments of your whatever of the family is, where does that come from? Why is it that I think about money that way? Mm. Um, why? And then you might start noticing, oh, wow, I, you know, that there's been this trend in the family. And so it just becomes the norm and um, why is it that this is the way I handle conflict and um, you'll start noticing these 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 trends as you start digging in so um, you know if any of you are interested uh, I can give you um, some guidance in in how to do that um, I will encourage you to do it because I think it gives you a visual a visual picture um, of that, but please um, speak to me if you feel like as you're looking at these 10 commandments and you don't really know um, where they come from, I'll encourage you to look at, to look at that. Um, you know, we, we're going to, let me just read something, I think, in the next slide. Um, yeah, so here it says, our fear of bringing secrets and sin into the light, however, drives many people to prefer the illusion that if they don't think about it, it mm. somehow goes away. You know, it can be really uncomfortable to start realizing where these unhealthy um, patterns come from. It can be really painful when you start recognizing um, the dysfunction in your family. Um, I know for me, one of the things I feared in doing this was I'd realized my family was actually a lot more dysfunctional than I believed it was, you know, but the reality is this doesn't just go away. Um, unhealed wounds open us up to habitual sin against God and others. Again, this is linked to triggers, to schemas, and if we don't um, go back and start getting beneath the iceberg and understanding 
ourselves, understanding who we are before God and in our relationships with others. Very often we just stay stuck and we might try and try and try. You know, obviously God's spirit works, but God is a spirit of illumination. He wants us to understand. You know, he wants us to understand so we can have conviction. And I don't think that just happens automatically. It can, but I think, you know, we need to be willing to put in the work and become uncomfortable so that God can work in us. Um, yeah, so, you know, part of the group exercise today that we were going to do uh, is around Joseph and his family and really learning from them um, and specifically looking at Joseph um, and how for Joseph, he had to go back in order to go forward, you know, and obviously he didn't have any of this material <laughs> and God was still working really powerfully. So, you know, this story takes place in Genesis this 37 to 50. And in the, um, in the little workshop lesson, it covers only a very specific portion of it. Mm. So I just wanted to take a little bit of time to kind of set the scene and to, to sort of draw it through to the genogram as well, to really look at this family. Um, change the slide. And I'm actually working from a family tree. Okay. I, I, I did not have time to create a genogram. So this is just a, a family tree, but I'm going to speak through it a little bit and, and help you to just see that um, certainly there was brokenness. Mm. There was dysfunction in this family tree. Now this goes way, all the way back. We see Terah right at the top, but Abraham. Um, so, you know, I think one of the things, let's just, let's just talk about, um, you know, sort of relationships um, and consider the situation with Abraham and Hagar and Abraham and Ishmael. You know, that became a cutoff, estranged relationship through tension that there was in marriage. And obviously through them stepping out of what God had designed. So, you know, there would be a specific symbol that you would use to draw between Hagar and between Ishmael. Um, it's kind of like a line with a break in it. Mm -hmm. There's specific symbols that you can use that you can start easily identifying it. Now, if we, if we go down to, um, to Jacob and Esau, that same um, situation happened where Jacob and Esau became cut off. They became estranged from one another completely through circumstances. And I think part of this sort of unhealthy um, pattern that there was in this family was this, this favoritism that parents had and displayed very openly towards their children. Um, Isaac, we know, he clearly favored Esau. He loved Esau's food. He favored him whilst Rebecca favored Jacob. Now, I don't know any of you who have families. If children pick up that there is favoritism, mm -hmm. that daddy favors so-and-so or mommy favors so-and-so, that is going to create tension amongst the children. And they might even sometimes laugh about it or joke about it. But it does something to a child when they know that there's a favorite. Now, think about Jacob. Jacob so completely had a favorite mm -hmm. out of all his children. Usually, you'd think it would be the firstborn. Um, Isaac, you know, they were twins, but Esau came out first. But we, we know that, that Jacob clearly favored Joseph. And the Bible actually says that he favored him. He was his favorite because he had been born to him in his old age. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there was more to it than that. We do know, think about this. Um, Jacob had two wives and then their servants were also his wives. So Leah and Rachel were Jacob's wives. Now, they were sisters. But remember, Jacob always wanted Rachel. 
the younger sister. He had to take Leah as well. So there was conflict between Leah and Rachel. Continuous conflict between them because of this. Again, Leah knew that Jacob was in love with Rachel, knew that he favored her. And there was constantly this competition between them. Now, I know kids are, again, they are sensitive to this. They would pick up on that competition like that. They would know. Um, and then on top of that, so when Jacob had Joseph, he was his firstborn son to the woman he truly loved, Rachel. I think that's also why he favored him. The way he treated him, he treated him like a firstborn son. He gave him this robe, you know, he, he, yeah, he didn't want him to go out and just look after the sheep with his brothers. He actually was sent to check up on his brothers. Now, if that's not a firstborn son role, I don't know what else is. But this created huge um, conflict in the family. Um, we know that um, these kids would have picked up on this conflict that was running between, between the wives and then the family dynamics. Um, and, and we know that in the end, these other sons, all of them except for Benjamin, baby Benjamin, who was Joseph's younger brother, who um, Papa Jacob also, um, he was very, very special to him because Rachel died at his birth. So um, he was really the last born son of the woman he loved. And they grew to hate Joseph. It says they couldn't say a kind word to him. They snarked behind his back, you know, and there was this consistent vibe. Okay, this is what was going on, on in the family. Now, when you do your genograms, one of the things they encourage you to do as well is to look at what are um, earthquake events that happened in this family, okay? Um, now, obviously, there were some major earthquake events that happened, even for Abraham being called by God and leaving everything behind to go to a completely new place. I mean, that changed all his descendants forever. But I just want to specifically hone in on, on Jacob and his family. There is this story in the Bible about um, Leah's, the only daughter it mentions is Dinah. You can see her there with um, all the other brothers, Reuben, Simeon, all of them, Dinah. Now, I don't know that she was actually the only daughter. I don't think she was, but she's mentioned for a specific reason, because she was raped. And the consequence of that rape was that Simeon and Levi, out of anger and out of hatred towards the, the, the man and towards all the men in that town of Shechem, that city of Shechem, they took it into their own hands to go and take retribution. And mm. they had this plot and they killed all the men in that, um, in that town. Um, and after that, they actually had to move. The whole family had to up and had to move because Jacob said, you know, we're small. You guys, now they're going to come against us. They're going to wipe us out. So they had this huge event that happened to them in their lives, which seems to just be brushed over. But can you imagine that happening where your, you know, one of your close um, siblings, one of your siblings in the family is raped and shamed and, and then your brothers go off and kill the whole city, and now you've got to flee because your life is under threat. This is huge. The other, other big, big event, obviously, was Joseph's disappearance. This traumatized Jacob. He, he was never the same after that. I can only imagine how it traumatized his younger brother, Benjamin. Obviously, the other brothers all knew what was happening. Benjamin didn't know, never was told. Jacob was never told. And these brothers had to carry this, um, this, this uh, incredible load of, um, of, you know, of knowing what they had done, you know, this, this, this guilt of their deception. They had to carry it for years and years. And that has a huge effect on people. 
One of the things that is, is also interesting to take note of is Judah. Judah was the one who came up with the idea to sell him off, to sell Joseph off to the Midianites. After that event, Judah left the family and he went away for a time. I think he just couldn't bear to see his father. You know, I'm, I'm reading into the story, but I put myself into their situation. So that was also a very, it, it ruined relationships, this deed that they had done when they took matters into their own hands, you know. Um, so, you know, think about really, in a sense, the dysfunction that must have been there for all these brothers to come up with a scheme to kill their dad's favorite son. You know, we know that favoritism definitely breeds bad blood. And, and we clearly see that there was, there was really bad blood there. But I feel like it must be pretty dysfunctional for them to come up with this idea that it's a good idea to just get rid of, of, of Joseph. And this didn't happen overnight. It's not that you sit there and you find one day and the next day it's like, oh, no, you know, let's come up with this plan. Mm -hmm. It had eaten away at them for years. And we know, you know, with, with Joseph's dreams as well, the way he seemed to rub it in and all of that. But, you know, um, it's like they, they, they didn't resolve conflict at all in a, in a healthy way. It just simmered and simmered and simmered you know you never see them speaking to their father about it you never see them trying to help joseph to you know rather grow and mature in this um so really there, there was a lot of dysfunction there and um this was their family there was there was hatred there was deception there was broken relationships there was guilt now we're going to hone in sort of on joseph because joseph Joseph's life probably would have turned out very differently if he did not get taken, okay? In fact, we probably the whole family would have died off, as we know, because this was God's plan. But we know that by taking, um, by God allowing Joseph to be taken to Egypt, God does this incredible work in this young man who was pretty immature, pretty arrogant, and he takes him through these, these really hard situations I would say walls you know we speak about walls but he was 17 when he was sold into slavery and he was 30 when he finally you know was was taken out of that prison and was elevated at this time because he could interpret dreams and because he was going to save Egypt and all of his father's family mm -hmm. but this was 13 years of of being going through the absolute ringer, you know, going from one feeling like you just have come out of it and then it's bam, you know, you're back into it again. What is going on? And I want you to just put yourself in Joseph's position for a while. Uh, we don't see this when he's in prison, but he was a normal young man. He was human like any of us. You know, we only tend to see the good things about Joseph when we read that story. But imagine the thoughts Imagine the anguish he must have gone through in, in wondering, you know, how is my, how's my dad, you know, and imagining, you know, how's my baby brother, what's he doing, you know, and obviously all the thoughts about his brothers and how could they have done this. And, you know, if you look at um, when Joseph is, is married and he has, he has children, he actually names his firstborn Manasseh. And Manasseh is derived from the word forget in Hebrew. And he said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. But I want to ask you, did he really forget? I do not think he forgot at all. And we see that, yeah, in the, in the next parts of the story. So we know that um, with the famine, Jacob sends the 10 brothers off. He keeps Benjamin with his baby boy, you know, maybe he looked a bit like Joseph, maybe reminded him of, of his wife who was now dead, but to go, try and go and get food, okay. And obviously we know Joseph recognizes them immediately, um, but the brothers don't recognize him. Um, and instead, you know, Joseph accuses them of being spies. He's obviously, you know, he's sort of scheming in his head as to how I can't imagine how his brain is going so hard. How is he going to handle this? How is he going to address it? But um, he, he says to them that he's going to keep them in prison 
for, for, for three days. And in fact, it says that he actually speaks to them really harshly. I don't know whether at that point, you know, it's like now suddenly he's confronted with his brothers and all these memories would have come flooding back like it happened yesterday as to what his brothers did to him, how he could hear them, what they were saying, you know, and his brothers believe that by them being held and accused of being spied at, spies and thrown into jail, that basically what this is happening because of what they did to Joseph. So 13 years on, they are stuck. They are riddled by guilt um, of what they did. And they say there, we saw, now listen to this, put yourself in Joseph's position when he was in that pit. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. So, you know, those little bits in there about Manasseh's name, about, you know, how clearly Joseph was begging his brothers when they were coming up with the scheme and when they were talking about killing him and then about selling him off. I can imagine how he was still begging with them as the Midianites came and Judah was saying, hey, no, let's sell him to these guys. And even as he was being dragged off, how he was still saying, oh, brothers, please, please don't do this. Don't do this. And you know, Joseph hears this, and it says that he wept as he listened to them. Um, no way did the brothers know, you know, about this because he spoke, he, he spoke with interpreters constantly. So think about what was going on in, in his, his heart at this time. You know, I think he, he was so filled with, with sadness and he was experiencing this loss. He was going through it as though it was happening. Um, there's a great vulnerability that the scriptures reveal to us about Joseph. It's not just man up. You know what? This happened. It's in the past. You need to mm. move on. Focus on the job at hand. We don't see any of that in mm. Joseph. Um, and we can learn from that. So the story continues where... Finally, you know, I encourage you to go back and read this and put yourself in the story and really imagine the, the emotions and everything that goes with it. Um, the iceberg for the brothers, um, for Joseph. But finally, he, he meets his brother, Benjamin. And it says at that time that he was so overcome with emotion, that emotion that he actually goes away and he weeps in private. And again, in this whole process, this is taking Joseph back. Mm. It's taking him back to these, these, these old wounds that were certainly felt so fresh and so new for him that he had not forgotten anything. Um, and it just came up for him. And he was really processing all of this as he was, as he was allowing God to open up these wounds. Um, now, as he does this, the fascinating thing is about Joseph is how he, because of his walk with God and because of the work that God has done in him beforehand, he's able to see the bigness of God. He's able to see God's hand working powerfully in this. And we know it was to save his family. family. And he is able to absolutely forgive his brothers, you know, and it says that, you know, with the, I feel like he just went to them. Finally, when he reveals who he is um, and he opens up to them, gosh, um, that is so moving as well when it speaks about that encounter where finally he reveals himself to them that it's he was weeping so loudly that the servants could hear him. You know, he was he was absolutely sobbing and sobbing, but that was healing for him. And he can say to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. You know, this story could have gone really differently. Joseph could have, like um, Simeon and like Levi, when they took it into their own hands, out of their anger and their, you know, their, just their, their violence of, of what they were going to do, going and just killing people. 
Joseph had it in his power to do that. His anger could have resulted in him literally taking the lives of his, his brothers. He could do that. But instead, he allows God to, um, to work to the extent where he joins with God to bless them. Um, and just something that I have here that it, I don't know if it's a slide or not, but it says, um, yeah, this is, a, this is by Pete as well, you know, where it says Joseph could have destroyed his brothers with anger. Instead, he joined with God to bless them. For those of us who've been deeply wounded like Joseph, that can be, that can feel like a difficult, almost impossible path. Joseph made a choice. It is the same choice we make every day. Is God safe? Is God good? And can God be trusted? You know, and here again, I just want to remind you that, um, you know, you have people with you on this journey. Um, God wants to use our past to be a blessing to others. And I know so many of you are because of the work you've done, because of your willingness to go back, to open up those wounds and allow God to do this amazing work and transform you. You've become such a blessing to other people. And, you know, I'd encourage us to go on to do it more, you know, but in your groups, you know, realize you're not alone. If this is really hard for you, um, I know it's going to be hard for some of you. There's some wounds that you've never opened up. You've not wanted to. It's just been too scary. It's been um, too um, overwhelming, but you can, you know, you can, you have a place where you can share your feelings. You know, we can pray together, give you space to process those hurts. So, you know, have courage um, as well. And just, it's interesting. Sometimes um, we need to ask other people to get insights into ourselves as to, you know, how do you experience me? Allow people into your life, you know, and listen Pray, ask God to give you insight into your life as well as to the areas that you need to grow in. And, and let's all repent. Let's let's change and, and grow where, where we need to do that. So, um, yeah, but it's a journey.